to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are very excited to be joined by Samuel Hughes, who's a research fellow at the University of Oxford and head of research at the Office for Place within the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Welcome to the show, Samuel. It's a pleasure to be here, but I should be very clear right from the start, I'm speaking here as an academic and certainly not as anything to do or on behalf of the Office for Place. Thank, thank you for making that clear. Thank you very much. So well, today, I have to add that. that uh, <laughs> <laughs> whenever I appear publicly, I have to say this now. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, thank you. So let's begin. Um, today we're going to be talking about architecture and urban planning. So let's start with a um, very basic question. Are the buildings that we're building today uglier than the buildings of the past? There's a difficult, a philosophically difficult question here when you when we try to talk about objective ugliness, is there really objective ugliness or is this just a matter of people's responses to buildings? I think we can probably bracket that and just look at people's responses to buildings. So we can ask, are people more likely to find buildings built recently uglier than buildings built 100 or 200 or 300 years ago? Um, and there does seem to be empirical evidence for this. Um, so there's, there's not a huge body of literature on this, but there, there does seem to be quite a lot of polling evidence where people come out quite positively about older buildings and come up with more mixed responses to recent buildings. Um, and that also shows up in um, pricing data, at least in some cases. The, um, there seems to be some tendency for people to um, be prepared to spend more for older buildings um, and to have a, again, not by any means a uniformly hostile response to new buildings, but um, a more mixed one. Um, and that obviously is a very uh, puzzling and strange phenomenon. So how do we know, and maybe you can talk about the term a bit, how do you know that we're not just experiencing survivorship bias? Survivorship bias is this um, uh, very clever idea. It goes back, the, the locus classicus um, is from the, American, uh, from the American military in the Second World War where they were trying to work out um, where it was on planes, where planes needed more armor in order to uh, come back safely. And they, they um, got all their records on uh, planes that had come back from Germany um, uh, after bombing raids. And they found, they highlighted various points where all the recorded damage was. And the engineers thought, oh, we better have um, more armor on, on these points of the, uh, of the planes, because this is obviously where the enemy is shooting us. And the, um, some, another engineer um, then pointed out, no, well, hang on a sec. That's because all the uh, planes that got shot elsewhere on the plane were shot down and crashed and never got yeah. back and never got onto our records. So we've ended up with this peculiar situation where the uh, points that need more armor are exactly the points where we have no recorded damage because every hit on those points was fatal. So that's the classic survivorship bias. And people think maybe this is going on with buildings. Maybe what happens is the pretty buildings from past centuries are preserved either because they're the pretty buildings or because pretty buildings also happen to be better built and therefore more likely to, to, um, to survive. And the ugly ones are all gone. And then we end up with a biased sample. We end up with the best buildings from previous centuries. Um, I, I think there probably are some limited survivorship biases. Um, there probably are some cases where this obtains to a degree, but it's, and we've got a lot of evidence on this, a lot of evidence to suggest it probably isn't a very major factor. Um, so one kind of evidence is we've got 
some classes of old building which survive with a very, I mean, the sample that survives is most of the buildings that were built. So 19th century Paris, um, much of later 19th century Paris, much of later 19th century London, like most of it's still there. Um, so the survivorship bias couldn't be very strong in these cases because well, and that there isn't, it can't be a very biased sample because the sample is nearly all of what was originally there in the first place. Yeah. The other thing we've got, of course, is we've got masses of photographic evidence. So aerial photography that covers most of the um, built, well, most of urban Britain in the early 20th century. So you can go through all these pictures and be like, yeah, it's not, it's just not that plausible that there were loads of ugly buildings here that have since vanished. So I, I mean, I think the survivorship theory is very, you know, survivorship explanation is a clever explanation of a really bizarre um, fact, but I, I don't, I think it's ultimately not successful. And um, there's plenty of evidence to, to show that that's the case. So I'm, I'm reading the new novel right now by Sally Rooney, the Irish novelist. It's so wonderful book and there's a point in the book where the protagonist is thinking about when when precisely the world became ugly and she says it's when plastic became you know the the dominant material of our lives and she says i think somewhere in the 70s or 80s um do you have a sense of when the buildings that we build became uglier well i think if one looked so in as much as we've got polling and pricing data, I think we'd probably find people's, people, people's enthusiasm starts to wilt a bit after the First World War, and then it really fades a lot after the Second World War. Um, and then maybe has recovered a little bit since then. People probably a bit more enthusiastic about recent buildings than they are about a lot of buildings from the 50s and 60s. Um, I think, I mean, the connection to the novel, I think there's a further connection one reason for this probably is um, that it's once you've got a lot of modern materials around, the cheapest and easiest building to make may be an ugly one. Um, so, so when people were building barns in earlier centuries, they may have built them out of timber and thatch, and it's very difficult to make an ugly building out of timber and thatch. I mean, you might just about be able to manage if you really tried, but if you're just trying to <laughs> enclose some space and protect the stuff from rain, you're going to end up with something fairly attractive. Whereas if you're building it out of corrugated, corrugated iron and breeze blocks, which is what they do today, you're, it's probably possible to make something beautiful out of corrugated iron and breeze blocks, and people have probably done it. Um, but it takes a very fine architect to do that. And if you're just putting up a functional building to protect stuff from rain, you're very unlikely to end up with that result. So I think that's, I don't think that's the only factor, but I, I think that's quite an important factor especially for some building types, like these more functional building types. Um, so yeah, and plastic is probably part of that too, although obviously <laughs> plastic isn't, uh, isn't as prevalent in architecture. So you are, you're, is it safe to call you a philosopher? I know you study philosophy. Are you a philosopher? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it's one of those words that one doesn't uh, sound slightly <laughs> ridiculous. To... <laughs> I'm a philosopher, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm trained in academic philosophy, and I now work both in academic philosophy, but also in, so I'm interested in, in, in philosophical terms, I'm interested in questions about architecture and urbanism in aesthetics, but I'm also interested in, in more applied um, policy questions in those areas. Yeah, I mean, so the reason I ask is I'm wondering sort of what the so what is. In other words, so we have lots of ugly buildings around. What impact do you think that has on, on us as individuals and also on our, on our interaction with others and our, and our politics? Yes, it's a very important area. This. 
So, I mean, one thing that's worth saying first is we've, we've got a lot of reason, you know, there are some cases when you're thinking about architecture where you think uh, this is, you know, is, sure, it's a nice, interesting subject, but this maybe isn't, isn't that important from the point if you're, if you're interested in sort of high impact work. Um, so I, you know, I'm one of these people who's interested in like studying Baroque church facades and looking at the details of the composition of different facades and thinking about which ones I prefer and so on. And I, I, this is a nice hobby for me, but I can see like, okay, this is sort of a, a low impact activity in some sense. And I think with, and with some other art forms, you might say, you know, these painting or sculpture, I think, well, there's never going to be a huge policy significance because it doesn't affect that many people. It's a, a, a small number of people care a great deal about it. But now with architecture, I think the interesting thing is it clearly does matter a lot to a lot of people. Um, you see that in like pricing data for how much people are prepared to pay to live in a more beautiful place. Um, you see it in how much time and money people spend on interior decoration and on gardening. These are like the biggest metal, some of the biggest national hobbies after watching television. Um, you can see see this also in research in social psychology about the um, effects on health and well-being of living in uh, not so much necessarily just attractive facades, but certainly the structure of the neighborhood, good urbanism, has a huge effect on health and well-being or sustainability on these kinds of so so I think it's it's an interesting area where there's a Although there aren't that many people who say, oh, I'm really interested in architecture, architecture is one of my key uh, hobbies, it actually matters a great deal to lots and lots of people, so much that they're prepared to spend an amount of money that equates to like several years of their working life on living somewhere that's more, more beautiful. Um, so that's part of the response. Why does you know, architecture matter to, 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 to uh, people individually? Then there's this question, which is, you know, in Britain has become a big issue in recent years about its some of its kind of um, political or policy impacts. So in Britain, I think, as in quite a few um, economically developed countries, there's a severe housing shortage now, which has pushed up prices a great deal, is creating a lot of social strain. Um, the cause of this is very complicated, but fundamentally, the key driver is that local communities tend to oppose having new housing built near them. Um, and the one of a number of reasons why people object to having new housing built near them is that they expect it to be ugly. And that obviously is a perfectly reasonable expectation because new housing often is ugly. So, so one, the issue of um, building beautifully has become of considerable political interest again in Britain um, because people have cottoned onto this idea if we can build in more popular ways, that will uh, allay one source of opposition to building and it will make it a bit easier to build and that will make it a bit easier to address the housing shortage. So it's, it's not a total solution, but it uh, it's one important contributory factor. Yeah, I, I wanna talk to you about an article that I, I read of yours where you propose a, a rough scheme for how we create better suburbs. So. Maybe you could tell us what's the what's the scheme. Historically, we look at how cities develop. They mostly um, they have quite simple regulatory systems. 
So you could usually build in, in Europe, you could usually build up to I don't know, five, six, seven stories. Um, there were all sorts of uh, fire regulations, building regulations. You could cover most of your plot if you wanted to. Um, and then in some places they had regulations on facade pattern, uh, on how the building looked to its neighbors. But beyond that, not very much. So what happened typically was that um, as population grows, outward growth of cities is constrained because most people are pedestrians, so they physically, cities can't grow outwards that much. So floor space values rise, people make up, make better use of their, of their plots to uh, meet this rising housing need, and you gradually get them adding the stories and using up more of the space. So European towns, I mean, London, the first multi-story houses in London were not until I think, the 13th century. Before then, City of London would have been a city of bungalows with very low plot coverage, long, deep plots with um, big sort of vegetable gardens behind the house in front. And now all those areas would be going up certainly to you know, eight storeys um, and certainly with very, very high levels of plot coverage, just with sort of light wells to illuminate the rooms. Um, and that's a kind, that same is true of you know, Paris, Florence, Rome, Toledo, all the celebrated cities that we know. Um, gradually intensified over time to meet rising housing need. Um, and these are now very celebrated places and uh, urbanists regard this as in many ways, one of the best ways to um, one of those sustainable ways with the best health and wellbeing outcomes and highest levels of popularity and so on. So it's a very attractive outcome that was reached this way. So 20th century, we get cars, massive outward sprawling of cities, people can live at much lower densities. Um, and in the course of that, we lose the habit, culturally and institutionally, of intensifying neighbourhoods. And people get a kind of expectation, which ends up often being sort of more or less guaranteed by um, policy, that their neighbourhood will always stay in more or less the built condition that they found it in or that it was built in. Um, now, that mode of building has reached, in different countries, it's reached different kinds of crisis point. So in Britain, it's the crisis point is that British people aren't prepared to allow more outwards fall onto the countryside because there's not all that much countryside and it's um, perceived to be very scarce and threatened and people want to protect it. So we have I mean, strict policy restrictions on the outward growth of many British cities. Um, if we were in previous centuries at this point, we'd have like, this will be a, a newer policy version of the old boundaries on outward growth that were imposed by, by pedestrian life. Um, and you'd see intensification happening. You'd see gradually the kind of suburban development that we'd started out with would move up to something more like you know, inner London um, or Paris or Rome or any of these old towns. Um, but that's now become very difficult for us because our systems no longer um, make that possible. So, so my interest in my work is to try to find ways of, uh, of um, in which we could uh, consensually move back towards um, making that kind of thing possible towards some of these um, historic patterns of intensification. Um, do you want, that's, that's, my, that's my backstory. Do you want me to go into more detail on the policy now? Um, yeah, if, if you can, that'd yeah. be great. Yeah, <laughs> delighted. Yes, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> mindful of having a rightful board. No, don't, don't worry. No. The, um, so the situation we have at the moment is that um, you can have many, so 
given since floor space is very scarce in Britain, um, in parts of Britain, a lot of demand is there to uh, um, intensify plots. And if someone were to get uh, planning permission from the local government to turn their semi-detached house into so semi-detached, called duplex in America, so two-story house typically with quite low plot coverage. If they got permission to turn that into just like a traditional 18th century terrace going up to four stories with a roof story or and making you know keeping a big back garden but making a somewhat more efficient use of the uh, of the plot just the fact of getting that permission would make people into asset millionaires in many cases because they would know that uh, um, even once the build cost had been subtracted from the uh, sale price of the permitted building there was so much left over that they could sell this at a huge increase in value to a to a developer or they could do the work themselves if they wanted to. Um, so you could have a lot of people who are very interested in that, but obviously if they're doing that, then their neighbors get disruption next to them for two years and then they get loss of sight lines and immunity and so on afterwards. So the neighbors have all got a really strong reason to oppose them um, and to try and stop them from getting these rights. And at the moment, the way the current system works, that that the neighbors would usually be able to veto it and it wouldn't really happen. Now we can imagine a street where it might be it might be that everyone would really like to get this permission because it's so much so strongly in their interests to get it. But it's also in everyone's interest to block that permission for everyone else. So you get like it's a kind of a cl classic collective action problem with Mr. Lemmer where uh, everyone's vetoing something which uh, would actually everyone individually would quite like to have. And we were thinking is there some way around this kind of collective action problem, some way of creating a mandate for this kind of change? And we've struck upon the idea of a street vote, where you uh, streets vote by a supermajority for proposals that would allow them the right to intensify within very clear limits, basically within these kinds of traditional 18th, 19th century limits. Um, and, uh, we, and we don't know at this stage how much appetite there will be for this, but we think you know, it could be very, very strongly in the interests of many streets to support this kind of change. Um, and we think it's worth giving people, giving the streets the option of doing this um, because uh, it, it might tremendously benefit them. And if they do do it, it would be of tremendous benefit to the country as a whole because it would be a, a source of, uh, you know, potentially quite an ample source of new housing, um, which would, concentrated within existing urban areas it wouldn't be high rise it wouldn't be building on green fields there are various strong reasons where it's likely why it's likely to be close to train stations and close to um to high streets and so on so it would be a very attractive outcome and we think we think it's at least uh, at least worth a go i do too have you heard from anyone in the government since publishing this oh yes i mean the government's um, publicly announced that it's very keen and uh, and um, you know wants to wants to look into this. Um, it's um, yes, the the, the uh, lots of lots of government interest, lots of interest in Parliament. Um, got a, a a host of MPs who've uh, who've supported wow. it. Um, it's very exciting. I mean, it's exciting times in this country for this for this kind of thing. And I think, I mean, in the long run. Whether, whether we get this exact proposal through in this exact political cycle, you know, let's wait and see. But people are going to be looking for solutions like this because you know, we've reached a point where the outward growth model of building cities is sort of not 
really proving to be sustainable. It's not working that well. And in different ways in different countries, it's becoming you know, really, uh, in some cases, really in crisis. We've got to find a way of making a better use of existing urbanized space. And that's currently politically impossible because we have systems whereby local residents have a very strong you know, interest in, in, in refusing this kind of intensification near them. So we've got to try to find ways of creating win-win solutions, ways uh, in which um, local residents can create a mandate for kinds of change which is beneficial to them and which also leads to intensification. So I think globally we are, we are starting already to see, and we will continue to see in the decades, years and decades to come, a lot of interest in this this kind of approach. And so community-led suburban intensification is the mm-hmm. uh, rather unwieldy name that it has. <laughs> so um, what I'd like to do, uh, Samuel, if we can, is so I found your I initially found your work um, through Tyler Cowen's blog, A Marginal Revolution. I don't know if you if you read that ever. I uh, I am. I actually rarely read any blogs, but okay. <laughs> I am slightly aware of it, and I've I've uh, I know it a bit, and I've liked what I have read on it. Yes. <laughs> so 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 he has a wonderful podcast um, called Conversations with Tyler, and I, I do know that. Yeah, I've yeah. listened to some of those. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. And one of the things yeah, that yeah, he does, great, so yeah. I'm so I'm going to borrow from him today. One of the things he does is he he asks the guests. There's a little segment where it's called Overrated Underrated. What I'd like to do is I'd like to, speaking about the beauty of cities, I'd like to give you a city. I'm going to give you a few cities, um, but we'll go one at a time. And I want you to tell me just in terms of aesthetics, in terms of, and this is your opinion here, in terms of the beauty, the overall beauty of the architecture in the city, I want you to tell me if it's overrated in your opinion, underrated, or if you have not been to the city, you can say, I've not been to the city. Does this sound okay? (laughs) Okay, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) All right, let's begin. So um, let's start with a let's start with let's start with Manchester. Manchester is underrated. It's got a lot of great architecture, um, and it's actually a lot of a lot of it is urbanistically quite nice. Um, it's uh, I mean, like a lot of um, British Midland and Northern cities, it wasn't treated too well um, in the twentieth century, um, and we have a. I mean, I think we have a special national problem with this, um, partly because. Our historic, so in the mid 20th century, Victorian architecture tended to be despised, but older architecture, Georgian and medieval architecture and so on, was uh, respected. The special British problem was that our Victorian architecture was to some extent concentrated in these quite fully, almost entirely Victorian cities like uh, Manchester and Liverpool and Birmingham. Um, So those cities didn't really get any heritage protection at that time because all of their architecture was this disreputable 19th century stuff. So I think we, we treated a lot of them quite badly, like in some effects, shockingly so compared to Italian or Spanish towns of comparable size. But you know, the underlying stuff is great. And the city is, it's, it's coming back. Population of the center is growing again. It's a um, lively, interesting, good place. Um, yeah, no, I think Manchester is a great town. I, uh, I, I would happily live there. <laughs> I agree. Uh, Rotterdam. I haven't actually been to Rotterdam. I am going to Rotterdam in a couple of months, but I I haven't been so far, so I sh- I won't comment. Okay, so you'll have to you'll have to send me an email after you go and let me know. <laughs> I, you think. I I found the, the architecture there fascinating, um, but it's you know it's obviously a, a pretty new city in terms of I mean most of the buildings were destroyed in the war. Um, Florence, um, I think about correctly rated. Um, 
I mean, Florence is, it is, yeah, justifiably very highly admired. And it's, uh, it's, um, it's been quite a while since I've been, but I, I, I did live there for a short time once and I thought it's an extremely livable, extremely pleasing place, kind of a perfect city of its, of its size. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I, I um, it's, it's uh, obviously, people, people probably emphasise Florence more than they would emphasise lots of equally good cities of similar size because of its significance in art history. But, uh, but it really is great. It really is terrific. New York. I haven't actually been to New York, curiously, although I did live in the United States for a couple of years. Um, I, I, I mean, I find it absolutely fascinating. And I, one of my hobbies is to prowl the streets of New York on Google Street View. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it's, you know, it and Boston and Chicago, I guess, are like the three great examples we have of a high-rise city where high-rise has been quite gracefully integrated into, um, if I say, traditional urban fabric, but certainly into a, a, a kind of densely woven, street-based urban fabric. Um, so I think, I mean, I, I think it's yeah, absolutely fascinating, and I, I'm inclined to admire it a lot. But I shouldn't really comment yeah. on it until I've uh, until I visited. Well, how about South Bend, Indiana? <laughs> I haven't been there either. Oh, um, I thought you were at Notre Dame. I was. I was oh. at the Rome campus of Notre Dame, Notre Dame. Oh, so I, okay. <laughs> uh, I got a sort of a fake version of, uh, well, a perfectly real version of the university, but I didn't get the South Bend experience. The um, so uh, Notre Dame is uh, it's very hard for me to say that. Sorry, you <laughs> can Dame. say you can say Notre Dame if you want. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were very tolerant of me saying Notre Dame. I, they were um, so it's the one um, or one of the very few. Um, architecture schools which teaches traditional architecture and urbanism and its students um, are all fascinated by this kind of dense mixed-use street-based urbanism which is also the, the kind of thing that fascinates me um, and they so something of an irony uh, that they all say they all comment on this that they live in a town that really does not embody these virtues um, and uh, and is very car dependent and has a very damaged center I, I am also told, though, that it's got really good architecture because mm. it was um, um, uh, a prosperous town at one time. Um, it's now had a process of post-industrial um, well, post-industrial challenges, but uh, there was a lot of money circulating around South Bend in the late 19th, 20th centuries, and apparently lots of really good stuff went up. So it's um, I'm told I'm told it's probably underrated, um, even though it is uh, mm. urbanistically you know, less than perfect because there is there is a, a great deal of good architecture there. But again, I speak without authority. <laughs> so I was going to ask you about Paris next, but I, you know, when I, and I've only been to Paris a couple of times for very brief stays, but um, one of the times when I was there, I, I spent, I spent a few days in the periphery of the city, in the poor areas, and, and the architecture was not by and large beautiful although obviously the center of Paris is, is very lovely. So I'm wondering, um, rather than ask you about Paris, I'm wondering, in, in all the cities that you've been to, are there less wealthy or, or poor districts where you feel like the architecture is just as beautiful as the architecture in the historic city center? Right, that's a very good question. That's very interesting. I mean, 
all cities will have a clearly will have variation in architectural and urbanistic quality. Um, but it it does vary from city to uh, how great that variation is is not constant between cities. Um, so suburbs of Rome absolutely frightful. Um, well, not, not all of them, some of them are very nice, but a lot of them are total mess, um, although the city centre is obviously terrific. I, I don't know, so, you know, metropolitan Paris or the Ile-de-France region very well. I only know the city centre, but it is, I mean, it's very striking. It's, it's got a huge, huge low density um, suburban expansion in Paris, totally unlike London. I mean, it's um, Paris has grown enormously since 1945 and London has grown hardly at all in terms of its geographical um, extent. So it's, you know, it's a very different um, pattern um, uh, to out of Paris. Um, and then, of course, it has the social housing projects from after the Second World War, or, or many of which are um, um, far from ideal urbanistically. Which, where would be best? That's a good question. Um, so Spain tends to be quite striking for having quite dense urbanism right up to the city periphery. Um, I think there's sort of long traditions of in which I, so I don't know. I don't know much about the Spanish. Um, I don't know much about Spain at all, and I certainly don't know much about um, Spanish, Spanish um, spatial regulations. But I think they have for a long time worked in such a way that cities do grow, but they don't sprawl and they add relatively dense neighborhoods on the periphery of existing cities. So Spain is very striking in that respect um, and in European terms may be unique. Um, the other country internationally striking in this respect is Japan. It's not though the urban periphery of Japanese cities will be not as dense as it is in Spain but it will be quite dense, kind of quite a closely woven um, um, probably yeah single family houses rather than flats, um, but um, but quite um, yeah, densely packed together and actually quite you know, mixed use um, and not car dependent, um, quite quite uh, attractive in many respects. So I, I, Spain and Japan are the two that have really struck me um, for having a relatively good quality urban periphery. Um, and then I think the more generic examples that people give of the Netherlands and Denmark probably have also some, some truth in them, that those relatively high standard of suburban development in those countries. Um, but yes, but Spain and Japan um, mm. are the striking ones. Okay, and, and then the last question is, should, should all of our mayors all around the world, should everybody who's elected to be a mayor of a, of a city, at least, be reading... Jane Jacobs, or is she no longer all that relevant? Well, Jane Jacobs is great. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, one of the best things about the uh, um, modern sort of architecture urbanism world is that Jane Jacobs has risen to ascendancy, and it's you know she's just about the one person that really everyone reads. Um, it's, um, I mean, clearly she's become, and because it's it's her stuff is now so widely accepted you're unlikely to find it um, um, sort of groundbreaking. You'll think like, oh yes, she is, she is stating the orthodox view on, on urban design and on um, flourishing cities. Um, but that, you know, there's no, that's no discredit to Jane Jacobs because she kind of created that orthodoxy or, or had a role in creating it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the, uh, 
the 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 um yeah best possible position for a book to be in. Shouldn't be where you stop reading, but it's definitely uh, definitely worth a look. Thank you.